If you're like a lot of Mother Earth news readers, or men heads as we call them, you want to buy high quality tools that get you ready for the job at hand. Based on our experience with Brincy's high quality incubator, brooder, and automatic door, we are proud to partner with them to bring you informative experiences such as this episode and our Facebook broadcast. Founded in 1976 by an engineer who loved to breed birds, Brincy brings simple designs, dependable components, and easy to use electronic controls to your poultry operation. Learn more online at www.brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Hello friends, I'm Charlotte Brunin, your podcast producer here at Mother Earth News. This episode was recorded at the Asheville, North Carolina Mother Earth News Fair. In this episode, we'll be discussing permaculture practices and why it's so important to incorporate chickens into them. Joining me are Amy Woodhouse, Jesse Bloom, and Patricia Foreman. Amy Woodhouse from the So Edible podcast is joining us and using the Fair Studio for a few hours to record here in Asheville. Amy's story started seven years before moving to the farm when she decided that her biggest dream in life would be to raise her children on a sustainable homestead. After much prayer, saving, research, planning, and lots of experimenting, her multi-generational household went on a search for the perfect property and began to break ground on their dream. Jesse Bloom is the best-selling author, award-winning ecological landscape designer and speaker. She owns Northwest Bloom Ecological Landscapes, based near Seattle, which is known as an innovator and leader in the field of permaculture, sustainable landscape design, construction, and land management. Her work has been recognized by government agencies and industry organizations and makes headlines in national media. She lives near Seattle with her two sons on their permaculture homestead, which is full of functional gardens and rescue animals. Patricia Foreman is a sustainable agriculture author, local foods activist, and popular speaker. She has presented workshops and book signings at major national festivals and conferences across the United States. She is the author of City Chicks and Chicken Tractor, and recently, A Tiny Home to Call Your Own. To help Chick Start America, she also developed the Backyard Chicken Keeper Certification course, which you can find a link to in the show notes. This is Mother Earth News. Well, I'm, I'm Pat Foreman, and I guess my chicken credentials come from uh, writing uh, one of the first chicken books called Chicken Tractor. It's the permaculture guide to happy hens and healthy soils. This was written back in the early 90s, and it's in its third edition now. And then I've also written um, City Chicks. It's employing chickens as garden helpers, compost creators, biomass recyclers, and lastly as local food suppliers, because I think people could he- keep chickens even if it were not for the eggs and the meat. They'd still have their skill sets that they bring to the, to the table, so to speak. And then we also wrote uh, Day Range Poultry. It's the, uh, uh, the commercial side if you want to do small-scale commercial. And again, it's about enriching the soils and, and having, uh, having local breeds. For four years, I was co-host of the Chicken Whisperer Daily Talk Show, and that gave me quite a depth and breadth of uh, information as well. So I have in progress, the next book is coming out would be um, the way of the hen it's incubating eggs and raising chicks naturally by using mama hens awesome where could we find the uh, chicken talk daily is that what it was called uh the chick the chicken whisper chicken whisper yeah, okay it, it's sustainable lifestyles and and uh, it's on the blog talk radio and i think it's still going on but, but i think blog talk radio keeps back 
archives. On okay, it. cool. Yeah. So this would have been about three years ago when I stopped doing it. Awesome. Do you guys want to rock, paper, scissors for it? <laughs> you want to go ahead? You okay. go for it. Okay. <clears throat> hey, this is Amy from So Edible Farm and So Edible Farm Podcast. Um, I, we are a family farm located in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, we have a podcast that we talk about. We share our adventure of um, building a farm, a family farm, and off-grid house. And we like to educate people on how to grow gardens sustainably, as well as making it really simple and easy using permaculture practices. Um, my chicken credentials come from experience of um, coming from the city life and getting some chickens, not really knowing what we were doing, just had read a lot of great books and tried to apply that knowledge. And um, we talk a lot about on the po podcast about um, you know what we found worked and what we found didn't work, as well as being able to um, apply lots of function stacking with the chickens. And what we realized was that the chickens, while everybody told us we have to get chickens for eggs, we realized that actually their superstar power comes in soil building, and as well as um, being able to make the most awesome compost naturally right there on your garden. And, um, and so it's been a really interesting experience with my children, learning so much about raising animals. Um, we have egg layers and meat birds, and being able to see how, um, how many different things and how many different products we can actually get from the chickens. It's been great. All right, I'm Jessie Bloom, and my chicken lady credentials come from 20 plus years experience of keeping them free range. So uh, my book, Free Range Chicken Gardens is about creating habitat for them to do what they do best without confinement um, or different strategies to keep them safe so that they can do their natural behaviors and give us all the benefits that they offer so naturally and beautifully. Okay. And as you know, I'm Charlotte Brunin, the podcast producer for Mother Earth News. I was going to say, we I'm sure have all learned a lot from failures of raising chickens. Yes. Yep. That's where the best lessons come from. Yeah, absolutely. What not to do, even more than what, what to do. So, yeah. I just listened to Kimberly Bastian's talk. Um, she's the one that did 52 Homestead Skills, which is one of our first Mother Earth News published books. And she had a lot of things to say about different things that didn't work out for her. One of them was she had a chicken run, and instead of using a fourth of inch spaced wire, she used an inch spaced, and a raccoon reached in. Yes. Shredded it through the wire. Yeah. That's a horrible thing. It's yeah. just, oh. So yes. that's definitely one. We had a, a chain link when I had my chickens, um, but they would make so much noise when the raccoons would come down there that we would be able to chase them off. And it was very adorable to watch at the time the little raccoons would go and like reach through the cage. And not be <laughs> not be able to reach them. So adorable <laughs> until they shred yeah. up. Well, they right. they'd yeah. like reach through and their head would be pushed back like this, and they'd be like <laughs> blindly. Uh, and then oh, no. the chickens would be like ten feet away, and they'd be like, come on, and then they'd run to the other side. So of course the chickens would go to the other side, and then they would do it again. And like, was this during the day or at night? It was a night. Night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Different sports for different people. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, what I wanted to talk about today, other than uh, my personal life, <laughs> is is keeping chickens and how that ties into permaculture. Um, permaculture is getting hotter all the time, and I personally think that that's fantastic. Um, 
different people have different views on it. But today, that's what we're talking about, chickens in permaculture and why they are so important for the permaculture practices. So um, does anyone have a jump off point with that? One of the amazing things about chickens is first they've been with humans over 10,000 years. So they're no stranger to us as long as dogs and cats. And it evolved the way um, they'd be around human settlements and they would eat the scraps and then of course the people would get the eggs and, and meat. So there was a symbiotic um, system that developed through, throughout the years with them. And the other thing that's really interesting about chickens is um, they're portable. I mean, they're kind of unit of use, you know, same like same thing as their eggs are, a little prepackaged unit of use, the, the eggs that are come out high, high protein. But because of that, they, they got to be all over the world. And, you know, chickens don't migrate. Do, do they fly to different continents? No. Did, well, they, they traveled everywhere humans went exploring. They took chickens with them. And they take them in canoes, they take them in wagons, they take them on ships. So it's, it's it, the only two places I think there aren't chickens are in the Arctic and Antarctic. So in that sense, they've been with us a very long time. And, and putting their skill sets um, to work has, I think, come out even more recently with the advent of permaculture and really understanding how, how livestock, chickens just being the most convenient, but they do the same things like uh, as buffaloes would do in the in the prairies. You know, the buffaloes would do uh, herd mob um, intensive grazing. They'd travel in a pack because the coyotes and stuff would keep them in a tight herd. So they'd manure their little pointy hooves that make a little dents in the soil, and then the, the uh, water catchment. Then the, the grass would grow as high as uh, as low as like 30 feet with roots, and as high that the cowboys could pull the grass around their pommels. So you can't have a buffalo in your backyard. But you can have chickens, and they do the same thing. They'll scratch. They'll make little watering catchment areas. They'll poop. They'll, the, 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 the seeds can go in there, and they literally are part of then that dynamic system that creates topsoil, yes. like you were saying, Amy, as well as uh, giving uh, you know, the meat and the eggs and their voracious herbiciders and insecticiders and <laughs> compost creators. So they, it's just such an amazing array of talents that they bring to uh, a food production system for humans. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what you just said about the soil building and the composting, I think that gets so overlooked and it's such an important piece. And I think it's also such an important piece that people think about, oh, well, I don't have a farm or I don't have a home, like a really large plot of land. But in reality, you could utilize that even in your backyard garden. And it's something that I think would help a lot of people that are really into composting. Because if you just throw all your compost into the chicken run, then the chickens can, they're scratching it up for you. They're doing the work for you. They're making it essentially easier for you. And um, I think that that's something that um, people should really take in consideration that are, you know, into gardening in their backyard. If other than just the um, egg layering, that they should really look into the fact that they can build soil, soil and have their own um, manure to use on their garden after they age it. Right. Well, well the magic ingredient that chickens bring is the manure yes. for the compost yes. because it's so high in nitrogen. I mean, uh, so it, it competes with commercial NPK yes. hands down. Uh, plus, it's got all the microbes in it and all the micronutrients. So, so to compost in a backyard without enough of the nitrogen yes. is really hard. Exactly, exactly. So that's why they, they take their manure and then you combine it with all the browns and they enable then the whole process to go forward. It's so much easier to do. So one of the things that I keep thinking about is that to have chickens successfully 
it takes creating or designing a system that they're a part of rather than just getting them as an isolated element to take care of. And one of the things that I started with was I refused to keep them caged in a way that like it was a commodity to me because I knew it was a lot of work. I knew it wasn't good for the birds. And in creating a system where they can be out foraging, they can be a part of the ecosystem, I think is a big part of it. But making sure they're safe, making sure that the compost system is set up, making sure that they have forage areas um, where they're not destroying your garden. Yes. (laughs) That's one of the (laughs) biggest complaints. Exactly. Um, Having that system designed well is really critical. And um, chickens fit into almost every situation. It's just a matter of making sure that it's designed up front so that people don't run into problems. Exactly. Absolutely. Their skill sets are are even more expansive than that. Um, In in City Chicks, there's there's sort of a pictorial table of contents, (laughs) (laughs) which is my doodling that you talk about. And and because they're just so versatile, and I think they've been with humans so long, I mean, besides their garden skill sets, um, they're harvest cleaner uppers. I mean, they can get a lot of their food from from what people eat and uh, leave behind. So whatever pe- whatever we eat, they'll eat ch- as well and and more. Um, they're stealth insecticiders and and broad spectrum herbiciders. You know, if you leave your chickens in a in a place too long, uh, like in a, uh, on a raised bed or in a chicken tractor, that you, well, they'll kill the grass. But you leave them there long enough, they kill the grass. <laughs> you don't have to use an herbicide or that. You just put them there, and that's that's where Jeff Loudon did so beautifully with the with the, the for food forest in ten years. He started yes. with chickens, clearing all the weeds and soils, fertilizing it with their manure, right. and then they planted in it. And the chickens weren't in a, at that point; they just prepared the soil. Right. Um, they're fuel-free tillers. I mean, they're like little backhoes. You you put them in a certain uh, certain area, and they will scratch and dig, scratch peck, dig, scratch peck, dig sort of seamlessly. And um, not the least of which is um, the compost turners that you talked about, Amy. Some of the things I think we forget about though is the entertainment skills that chickens bring to us. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's probably one of the best. Uh, you know, it's like Prozac and feathers be- because you look at them, you just feel better when you're around around your chickens. And then um, there's a companionship and aesthetic value. Some of these birds are absolutely pieces of art. They're just gorgeous. And we're finding that the therapy chickens uh, is another one of their amazing skill sets. Not all birds, but some you could, you could especially train the handler and, and the bird to do public visitations. And we're finding that with the autistic kids, we'll have a response to the soft, feathery touch that they won't have re- with cats or dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've worked with Alzheimer's patients that will al- do the same thing. Even though they don't remember that, but sometimes that'll bring out memories of their childhood, and uh, they'll have uh, a wonderful reaction to them that the staff is stunned at because I didn't know. You know. And, and so they can they can be used uh, in a lot of ways as educational programs in schools. We just um, two weeks ago at, at Easter did a hatch out at a retirement center. This is the third year in a row we've done it, and it's the talk of the center. I mean, the whole it's like it's brought the whole community together to watch the little chicks hatch out. Then, then they, they actually take them around to, to the um, Alzheimer's unit and, and, and uh, people in their, in their apartments. So they go chick visiting, and mm. they hold them, and they just talk about them, and so they, they talk about the different breeds. So there's a whole communication and, and community aspects to chickens as well that I think is often overlooked. So I think we're just getting started and really bringing them back into our culture and employing them and respecting them and uh, letting them express their chickenness more than just for eggs and meat. I, I think it's an exciting time on the chicken front. 
Well, and having them in the classroom like that is just so, so important because, um, you know, there's so many uh, people out there, but especially children that are so disconnected from their food. And when they are able to see uh, a baby chick, and, and especially if they're able to watch a baby chick grow into a chicken, and they're able to have a respect for the animal and a respect for um, what the animal is giving them, you know, um, I think it's just... it. It's so important for people to understand where their food is coming from and therefore be able to make very wise decisions in what they're eating and where they're purchasing their food from. And I think the local food market and the local food system um, would be very wise to take something like the chickens, which are very um, very fun and very soft, like you're saying, and very um, entertaining, and yet use it in an educational purpose that would draw children and then, of course, their families to understanding how important it is to support your local farmer and support your local food system. Yep, we just raised chickens uh, in a preschool for work. Yep. We well, we incubated them. We incubated chicks, and um, it was very fun. You incubate eggs. Yeah. And, and you okay. Chicks. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, anyways. Did <laughs> <laughs> um, the the eggs hatched out in the school and then they raised the baby? They brooded the baby chicks. So no, they it was a hatch only project, and okay. and then they didn't feel like they had the space necessary to keep the chicks in the classroom, but they got to hatch there, and that was super cool. And I was coming in like over my lunch break and then after work to check and make sure everything was going how it should. And one of the uh, instructors asked me how to hold them. And she said, I don't even know how to hold one. I don't want to. If, if the kids want to pet a chick or get a visual, I want you to come and do it. And I was like, well, that's fine. Um, but have you ever held a toad? And she said, <laughs> and she's like, not since I was a kid. <laughs> like, okay, well, I guess I'm the oddball here. <laughs> but <laughs> like you just, you just cradle their legs, put your hand over the top and, you know, be very gentle. Keep them still. Keep them feeling safe and secure, just like a toad. <laughs> That's an excellent analogy. Yeah. But, just a bit. Yeah. What, what, what we tell them is very similar to that, mm -hmm. but it's just hold your hand out flat. So when the chick, if you do it like, like make a little cup, then they don't have a flat surface for the mm. little tiny feet. So just put it out flat, have the chick face towards you, so if it flocks out a little, and then gently put your hand over the top like a mama hen, just to give it shelter, but not to, to press on it or anything. Yeah. And then, and then you know what they do? They go, oh, and then they pull it right to their heart. Mm -hmm. they go, oh, oh right there. <laughs> I mean, that's stimulating endorphins. That is just such a feel-good uh, topic that, or, or feeling that I mean, yeah. you can't buy that, really. Well, I just, I love the opportunity to see adults who I, yes. I never expect other adults to not have the same experiences that I have had. Yeah. And I've, you know, got my feet wet in several different areas of homesteading. And then to see someone experience it and be so intrigued and then want to do it again mm -hmm. or want to do it on their own. And I'm sure these kids are going home to their parents and their parents right. are like, okay, well, I'll check out incubators, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what we're doing now yeah um but yeah it's just it was cool it's a cool project and hopefully we'll keep doing it yeah. year after year um yeah, yeah. i've got to say we uh through the gossamer foundation it's a non-profit that that i helped found 
dedicated to global sustainability and local foods because we feel we can't have one without the other, especially in these changing times. But, but mm -hmm. we have an online course with coaching to incubate the eggs, and we go into the embryology and, and how you can, what you know what's going on inside the, the uh, shell while it's incubating can make you m a much better hatch. Yeah. And, and that's, um, we have a hatchathon. So everyone has to have their own incubator, and we all set the eggs at the same time. They all hatch out at the same time, and then they can take that forward into the classes or whatever. But that's uh, that's helping enabling people have you know self self perpetuating flocks, right? To, to be able to find eggs and uh, and you don't have to own a rooster to find fertile eggs. You know that's getting much easier easier. Mm -hmm. Because you can get to the local farmer. You can you can go to hatchery and buy some. Right, eggs. and you then just slip them with your broody gal and. Well, that's, yeah, then you can slip uh, the, the eggs under a broody hen, or you can graft the baby chicks after they're hatched out. Mm -hmm. on it. When I go back to this retirement center, it's uh, Friends Fellowship in Richmond, Indiana, I've got a big black ostorp that's broody. So I'm going to take some of those chicks and graft them underneath her, and then we're going to put them out in this enclosed area so they can just watch a broody hen with her babies. There's nothing more charming than that. Mm -hmm. It's just totally, totally disarming. So that'll be his first as far as I know of having a broody hen at a retirement center as a therapy chicken. Um, well, it's, it's certainly um, back to nature, isn't it? It a is. And who knows more about raising baby chicks, you know, us or a mama hen? Because there's a definite ho hen homeschool that she puts those little chicks come out. And when they're, when they're grown about five, six weeks, seven weeks, she'll ditch them. But they're different somehow. They have a little more chutzpah, a little more streetwise, <laughs> just a little. They're just different, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does the life cycle of the chickens play into permaculture practices at all, would you say? As far as like plan planning your, I want, I want to say permaculture layout because that's how I always think of it is a, in my head is like a picture and then everything and it's plot. But how do chickens play into all of those different things? Well, I think very dramatically. Um, back in the good old days before we had electricity, the, the, the chickens, um, I mean, as the, as the days get shorter, they lay lesser eggs. Uh, the, that they're programmed to do that because come winter, what a crappy time to be born a ch baby chick, right? There's not a lot of forage around. It's colder, at least in, in the northern and southern he hemispheres. It's harder to keep the chick warm. So, so knowing that, then I, I think uh, you can start collecting eggs and, and, and storing them come September, October. My grandparents always did that. They had a place down in the basement where they would store their eggs and they would buy enough to keep it through March or April. And then th as the days started getting longer, well, the chickens start uh, producing more eggs and it it's gets time to, time, time to do the chicks. Now with that also, they didn't put light on the hens during the winter. So the, under the basis, so similar with humans, you know, some cultures say a sh woman shouldn't have a baby within three years of each other because it gives her body time to mineral, remineralize and, and just recover. Same thing with the mother hens. It gives them time to remineralize their bones to get built up again. So when they start laying those eggs in the spring, they're really good thick shells. The, the chicks inside are, are uh, nice and healthy and, and uh, you know, strong and ready to, ready to pop out again. So. Knowing that as well as knowing that as long as a mama hen has, is sitting on eggs or having raising little baby chicks, she's not gonna be laying eggs. So that can help you plan the number of birds to keep you know, based upon their age and based upon what, what they'll be doing. And, and that can also help you plan your rotations. I think that, did that answer your question? Mm -hmm. 
I think a lot of people look to get chickens for like one use, usually eggs or meat, or and then they get upset when they stop laying or the the eggs stop coming in in the consistent flow. And people are always asking, well, how do I keep them going? And my my response is very similar to like just let them be natural, Mm -hmm. and that's a um, an important part of their well being, but. It, it's a it's a time for everything to recover. So why not give the chickens a break too? But when, when you asked that question, I immediately thought of designing spaces for mm-hmm. different types of chickens or different ages of them because I've had integrated flocks of different ages for many years where I might have um, youngins coming in and they don't necessarily get accepted by the rest of the flock. And so having different areas for them um, or having different tractors, I think is really valuable. So I, I sometimes call it the timeout pen for chickens that have been naughty, or maybe that have, are healing from mm-hmm. something. So they need to be isolated, but not necessarily confined in a way that they're not able to forage or um, have a, a good habitat to be in. So having different contraptions, I guess, or different fencing types um, so that you can move them around and, and have um, places for them depending on, on what they need is important, I think, in a chicken system. Would you say that chicks would be, um, you'd be less likely to put a chicken tractor with chicks in, in tall grass maybe? Right. Because they might stumble around or not do so well depending on that. Yeah, it depends on the age of the, the birds, but mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't raising them with a mama hen. They're, they're going to the feed store and they're getting, you know, two-day-old birds and they really um, not all of them are able to go outside depending on the temperature um, outdoors until they're many weeks old so it kind of depends on the region but I actually I'll get them once they've developed some feathers I'll put them in a chicken tractor outside um, or I kind of wean them out of being indoors and take them out on nice days um, this is making me really homesick and making me want to go sorry. home to chicks. Having having a plan so you're kind of acclimating them slowly because they, they are sensitive to temperature when they're really young. Hi, friends. Let's face it. We love our chickens, but the early mornings and the daily rush back to lock them away safely at night isn't much fun and doesn't always happen perfectly in our busy lives. Also, what's worse than almost getting to sleep only to realize that you left the coop open? Enter the ChickSafe Automatic Coop Door Opener. Brincy's ChickSafe All-in-One Automatic Chicken Coop Door Opens with a timer and light sensor. These are easy to set up and even easier to use thanks to a simple menu and large digital display. They are designed to perform all day, every day, and in all weather conditions. Get your automatic coop door so you can relax knowing that your hens will be safely looked after. Learn more online at www.brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A dot com. Or check the show notes for a direct link to the ChickSafe automatic coop door opener. So what about uh, covered areas versus open areas? Um, And then water resources do you have uh, water for everything that they also visit or do they have their own water like what's the infrastructure I guess is what I'm trying to figure out in a permaculture garden layout for chickens good question yeah well I think there's a lot of varieties of that a lot of that depends on how your land is set up so for Mm -hmm. example we have um, a lot of forest but we also have some open space and in that open space we have 
very horrible hawk problems. And if we let them just, you know, free range in the open space, and we've experienced that the hawk comes and they're gone, I mean, right in front of your face. They don't seem to, the hawks don't care that you're even standing there sometimes. And so, um, you know, but there's lots of systems you can set up to work around that. And so the way that we have arranged ours, uh, we have a chicken run, we have a chicken house in the middle and a chicken run on both sides. And the chicken house can be actually divided off in half. And so when we have our baby chicks, we can keep our baby chicks separate from the adults um, by keeping them on one half of the, of the chicken house. And the chicken house has doors on both runs. And so the baby chicks can therefore be opened up into to free range um, into a, a pen that has a ceiling to it. And what we do is we give them a little bit of um, ability to go outside and get fresh air. And we plant out inside the run the part of it that is not being used. And so when the chicks are getting a little bit bigger and they're allowed to go, you know, they're ready to kind of go a little further from um, cover, we will move the fence back. And then they've got, um, in that time space, things like comfrey and things that have grown really quickly have recovered and grown through, and the chicks can come in and forage. So as far as trying to keep baby chicks safe but still give them, you know, um, green space to be able to go into, that's kind of like one option, but as far as like the large chickens that can then handle being, um, go a little further from the pen, um, we have actually, we have the run that's um, protected at all times, and we have, but we also have a tunnel that tunnels them across the yard and into the woods, because as long as you have a woods and canopy, then the hawks can't get to them, and so the woods area is also fenced off for their protection, but they we can open and close that tunnel and control when they go and free range into the woods safely, and when instead we want to shut that gate and keep them in the run so that maybe we want them to kind of work on the composting in that section and, and keep them from doing that. So I think, but there's so many options, and I think it really depends on your landscape. Like, we can't do chicken tractors because of our terrain does not allow for that. We have too many stumps and too many, so being able to moving tr chicken tractors for us um, in our area wouldn't work, but like I have friends up the road that are successful with chicken tractors and being able to move them. So I think, I think you just have to kind of like find out what would work for you and your system. I mean, I think, I think the the classic permaculture answer here is it depends. Yeah, yeah exactly right. I would love to to get some more examples uh, if you guys have some of what people have done to get their chickens. One of the basic setups. So in my book. Um, we have a lot of diagrams for different scenarios. So like in the edible garden, how would you manage different small paddocks for them to rotate through? Like in the summer, they could hang out in a, a blueberry or a, a caneberry patch, right? So they're protected from any um, overhead predators and they can forage on the berries that fall and in that space around those. And they keep them weeded too. That's one of the great things. Um, for part of the year, they could hang out in the orchard. Um, another part of the year in the winter, they could be on raised beds, moved and rotated through tractors. So depending on what you want, it might be different for someone who has a forested space or a wildlife garden because they can free range with a lot less contraption, so to speak. But um, most people, I think, are starting with a coop and a run and then let them outside when they're around, when they're supervised. And then they learn what is needed. And, and that um, observation is important, I think, for a lot of systems because until you have chickens, you don't know what predators are going to come right. oftentimes. And sometimes it's a tough lesson to learn. You can talk to people in your neighborhood, but um, we have a lot of predators to work around to keep them safe. And I think that's one of the biggest design challenges is to make sure that they're not going to be attacked. Um, 
because once a predator knows where their food source is, oftentimes they'll keep coming back. So fencing is critical for most systems for chickens. Yeah, I, I think another thing with the uh, with the permaculture design is is the the whole concept of chicken tractor has evolved, in my opinion, to where it's not just a bottomless portable cage. It, it's putting the chickens and enabling the chickens where you want them to work, mm-hmm. and and that means different terrains. Uh, sometimes it's it might be a little fence around an orchard if they tend to wander a little bit. A specific tree. Uh, it, it might be putting building up a raised bed so you put them there for day duty type of thing so it, it's really gotten more sophisticated a lot more sophisticated than just a bottomless portable cage that you never let the birds out of which uh, in hindsight both Andy and I the co-author of the chicken tractor book we kind of regretted not having put a door in the first edition so you could open them up and let the chickens range yeah I think um having options is a good thing and one of the things about having a lot of systems is having to move the birds and um one of the things that i i love about chickens is they're so low maintenance yeah so having systems where you don't have to move them all the time like like picking up every individual bird and having to transport them to another area so the tunnel idea and having doors and gates in places that are well designed is really really important to think through ahead of time versus after the fact yes um because and then you end up with like a million little gates everywhere and tripping over them so the design of the fencing system is really good to think through ahead of time and one of the most important factors that i always start with is how many birds do you need because people tend to get a lot more and then aren't necessarily successful or there's a lot more damage done Um, but when i first started they told me get 25 percent more because I would lose them to predators. It didn't happen right away, but it did happen. And so it is common um, to lose them, unfortunately. I just lost some to a mountain lion. I don't know how to protect them from that. So that's a tough one. Yikes. They're very, very tall fence. (laughs) Big dog. I've heard heard that if you can angle the fence outward that they won't try and jump over it because when they look up, it looks like it's in their way. Hmm? So that might be something to think about yeah we had uh bobcats mountain lions uh possums the raccoons of course owls hawks um i think that's it yeah there's weasels don't yeah. underestimate the weasels but and there's uh, always something that yeah, will love yeah. your chicken more than you mm-hmm. the neighbor's dog sometimes yeah. and sometimes would, it's the neighbors we would lose <laughs> 10 chickens in one night with no sight of them yeah. and so it's like yes how many of you guys were here tonight taking my chickens? Maybe they were ETs and they were beamed up. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Extraterrestrial <Yeah>. chickens. <laughs> when I, I was telling, um, my, I first got started with chickens. I told my grandmother that I had, I was getting chickens. And they apparently kept them in their apartment um, during the Depression. And she said they'd have to keep them indoors because people would steal their chickens. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> And there, there can be vandalism and, and just uh, mm-hmm. chicken stealing, uh, not, not that uncommon. The, the other nice thing about chickens is the fencing can be varied. Uh, one of the things that you, you've never seen a chicken take a running leap and then go uh, like an arabesque over the fence, what they'll do is they'll go up and they'll, they'll look at the fence and they'll kind of go up and down a little bit. And if they think they can get up, they'll sort of flap, flop up to the top and they'll perch. And they want to look and see if it's really safe to go over. Is there any snakes or anything? If they think it's safe, then they'll flop down. If they don't think it's safe, they'll just turn around and go back the other way. So if you can have a fencing that's not very high, 
say, say three feet, and if it's wobbly, they won't go up on it. So that can be semi-permanent and easily moved kind of fence to, uh, to move around your garden. So uh, there are times when you might want to have them in the garden uh, after the, the, the crop, whatever it is, like something like corn, like high like corn or asparagus or amaranth. After it gets a couple feet high, you can take that fence off and they'll use that as an overstory mm -hmm. for protection against hawks and rain, wind, that sort of thing. Um, and then when they start to harvest, you they'll go and they'll clean up. They can actually free forage and get most of their feet off. So the, the fencing, I've found, uh, you can have your semi-permanent fencing with the posts, you know, and the two-by-four mm -hmm. wire mesh. Uh, you can have your really high fencing, like, like you were talking about, sort of a fortress, and then you can also have this little wobbly fencing. And you can get them where you want to go, just throw some scratch in there and call them, have a special call for them. I just whistle, and mine will come flying, literally. <laughs> As far as letting them like free range, nobody wants their gardens torn up. So what would you put them around? Mostly like brushy bush type vegetation? Perennials, um, so I would categorize edibles into perennials and edibles. And sometimes we mix them together in spaces. But if we can plan it all at the same time and plan the plants that the chickens can't damage mm -hmm. and only allow them in those areas, like a food forest, that design concept that's so popular in permaculture is perfect chicken habitat. Okay. Um, I mean, they're they're jungle birds, really. So having them in a multi-story um, layered ecosystem is really favorable for food, for protection, for you know places to hide, nest, get away. Um, that's the ideal habitat. And annual vegetable gardens, if we're only growing annuals, the the best time for them to be in that space is the winter. I mean, right. because there, and you can do a lot of things like what Pat recommended of having different fences and phasing that um, once the crops are big enough. I have contraptions. Um, it looks like a steampunk garden in early spring where I take fences, like the little wire fence, even chicken wire, and I'll fold it in a way so that the plants can get started. And then once the plants are above the little cage that I made, then I can take them off and then the chickens can go in. But it's really that that's where you're experimenting and I don't want to get in trouble telling people that it's okay, but I know in my own garden I've, I've had a lot of trial and error. If I'm getting seeds started, I'll lay fl fences flat over that area. Um, but it's easier to just keep them out altogether. Mm -hmm. with, with the beginning, absolutely. Just yes. just fence that off so they don't, don't get in. What about growing but, more things to feed them? You mentioned growing specifically with your chickens in mind. And Pat, you mentioned amaranth and a couple other things. Chickens we will eat anything. I mean, they're, they're, they're scavengers. You know, the trick is they've got to get their beak around it and be able to break it off. And so it needs to be either soft so they can get in and break it off or, or beak-sized. So if you're going to give them carrots or something, you know, that, that's, uh, well, say, even collards that are kind of tough, just chop it up so they can uh, get it, get it beak-sized. So one great thing you could grow is comfrey. And we grow comfrey all along the outside of our run. Um, comfrey is super high. Um, it's really great for fodder. It's super high in protein. It also has lots of minerals and lots of vitamins, especially vitamin B, which is kind of rare in a plant. And it's very prolific. In fact, people grow it as a fodder for not just chickens, but also rabbits and other animals. It'll grow over, a, a, I think it's like 140 tons an acre if you were to actually plant it out in an acre. Um, and so what a lot of what we do is we grow it around the run and the beautiful thing about comfrey is it grows these huge long leaves you can chop the entire plant off throw the whole plant in there and it'll grow back it'll also bloom 
three different times. And so then you're also, you know, function stacking. You're also expanding your bloom time so that your pollinators are now having more blooms to pollinate. Um, but what a lot of people do, what we find great success with, is growing them um, all along your fence line. So when you start with the first comfrey, cut it all off, throw it in the next day or the next couple of days, you know, go to the next one, cut it all off, throw it in. And by the time you work your way all the way around your fence line, the very first one has now grown back. And so it's very easy to grow. It's very tough. Um, one of the that's one of the plants that is um, not only great for chickens, but then you can use it in your garden as well um, for as a really great compost tea and chop and drop. So I think thinking that terminology, thinking of things that you can grow um, that your chickens will help your chickens. They also would be great soil building. Again, you're like taking advantage of small of filling as many things in your garden as you can. That can be really helpful people use it when you're mixing chicken manure in how do you make sure it's not too hot do you just test the soil you just compost or if they're just free ranging i mean you've seen jesse where there'll be these little plops around and come that next morning they're gone because the earthworms come up and they just suck it down or the rain rushes it down so it's uh we age ours um you know I, i just explained earlier how we have two sides of our chicken coop so when our baby chicks have grown they're ready to join the big chickens on the other side we will shut off that one run and let that side just age mm-hmm. and um, by the t- after it's done aging then we go in there and we shovel it into wheelbarrows and we take it and we apply it onto our garden and then we will then move the chickens when we get all that cleared out we'll deep mulch it and move the chickens back to that the, to the side where the babies were temporarily and let the other side age so and do so you just like scatter it or just like almost mulch with it? We like put it, we apply it on, we do a deep mulch garden and I think it depends oh, on okay. the way you do your garden, but in a deep gar- deep mulch garden method, you can apply it on top of okay. the mulch. Um, not during, not when you're wanting to, not during the time of the year where you want to actually harvest your plants, but more in the time of rest. So think of like the winter and fall, or if you have a certain bed that's resting, you can go ahead and apply that and it'll, the, the rain will let, will take the minerals and seep it down. What do you guys think? Do you think we need to add anything to this or? I I mean, in an hour you can't cover it all. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the big things are like designing the space, knowing the predators, putting them to use, knowing how to put them to use. I think it's one of those things that you need to learn by doing. Mm -hmm. You can't, um, you need to prepare. Like you need to be getting books and reading and studying from people that have had success or that people that have lots of knowledge on the subject. You need to do all those things in order to understand a base knowledge of what you're doing. But the bottom line is, and I think people will find this with not just chickens, but anything in gardening and permaculture in general, you need to take that knowledge and the only way you're going to know how to do it is to do it. And again, goes back to don't be afraid to fail. You know, you're going to fail. Just get over it. Like, fail, and you're, you're going to do it, but you're going to learn so much from those failures. And all the people that came ahead of you, all the people that have written the amazing books and all the people that have been so successful, they learn by failing also. Um, and so get out there and, and go for it and start getting your hands dirty and start trying it out and seeing what's going to work for your situation. And as the problems arise, then you need to take those problems and go back and research from the people that have, have been there and done that and know some solutions for each of those specific problems. So in other words, you know, you're having problems with hawks. 
you need to go research that. But you're not going to know you're going to have problems with hawks until you get the chickens. You know, that was one thing that really surprised me because all around us, we have all kinds of um, different farms that they free range their chickens, which is so fun. You know, you drive up and there's chickens all around, running around you. That's what I wanted. That's what my kids, you know, chasing chickens around. That's what I envisioned when we got chickens. But within the first week when we had chickens being literally swept away in front of my children's eyes by the hawks, that changes your opinion on that, like real quick. And so, but so there's so many things that you can't prepare for until you actually have them and you don't even know like some of the systems even. I mean, you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to say, I'm gonna start with this, but this might not work. This might be a disaster and I'm gonna be okay with that because I'm gonna like tweak it and move it and change it. And I don't know, I mean, I think that's really the best way to be able to know how to do it. One of the, when I was talking a lot about chickens, um, when my book first came out, what I realized all the questions people had were just simply addressing their fears. Like they didn't want to start because they were afraid of X, Y, and Z. And so I realized like, I just need to answer those questions in my talk and make sure that I was alleviating some of the fear, but telling them also like, yeah, you're you're eventually going to have a chicken die. Right. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. They're <laughs> right. short-lived animals. Yes. And you're not going to protect them forever. There are going to be predators. You know, you're going to run into some issues that you don't want to have happen or you didn't expect. And you have to anticipate that and, and be ready. Yeah. And absolutely. the more you inform yourself is great, but there's also such a thing as analysis paralysis. Yes. Where yes. you don't end up doing it because you're just researching too much. But it, I think a lot of people have a hard time because they do become so attached to these little critters and they just love them and they don't want anything bad to happen. And so when they do have something bad happen, it's, it's a major trauma event in their life. And then sometimes it scares them enough to where they don't want to do it again. So um, preparing for the failure, I think, is really good advice um, or the loss of birds mm -hmm. because ultimately they're going to die of old age. Um, Right. If if nothing else, so and it's going to be in in our lifetime for sure. Yeah, they're pets. We love them. Pets with benefits. Yes, <laughs> definitely. I'd like to add. I think there there is a, a broader perspective for having local flocks, and and uh, three three main reasons from my my opinion. There's more than three, but that's all we probably have time for. One is the uh, human nutritional value of. Uh, eggs from heritage chickens, as well as the, the neat meat nutritional value from heritage chickens raised you know, and on pasture yeah. is different. Uh, there's a different fat component that, that uh, is afforded by the heritage breeds and, and certainly the eggs. Uh, Cheryl Long uh, did a beautiful study on that of comparing the uh, nutritional human value of eggs. So I think the stakes are high on that because we're having so many diseases that we haven't lived long enough to have evolved into. They're called the epigenetic diseases because they're coming forward so much. And in a lot of ways, I think our societies, our kids are getting sicker faster, and I think much of it's diet-related. Yes, absolutely. Well. So nutrition and nutritional value, I think, is a big part of it. And that you could do a whole podcast just on, on that. It's a huge emerging subject. Mm -hmm. And it's so controversial because, you know, to come out and say that, that um, backyard heritage breeds have better human nutrition than the Cornish cross or the, the industry meat birds um, is pretty unpopular by the industry. You know, so that's a fine line that conservation groups have to dance around. Um, the other thing is emergency preparedness. I mean, 
we, we're having we're, weather weirding. Uh, I don't care if you believe in global warming or not. The weather is getting really weird. It's getting stronger. Um, uh, natural disasters are happening more often all across the planet. And I think those people that have uh, family flocks and strong local foods will have much more of an advantage of emergency preparedness than those communities that don't. And I know when that derecho went through Virginia, it was a massive windstorm. It was like a, a, hur a tornado, literally. No warning. It came up within 10 minutes from crickets chirping to <laughs> the trees falling all around. But uh, I was without electricity for about a week, and I was still getting eggs from my backyard. Uh, the whole county of 30,000 had one gas station that had electricity and gas. That was pretty nicey. And could have a chicken dinner or two, and if it got really bad, some of that organic chicken feed from that I got from New Country Organics made a really good muesli. I tried it <laughs> with uh, add some butter and some maple syrup. It was a little gritty, but quite tasty, a lot of minerals. And then the third thing that I think we're all kind of dancing around and, and haven't really faced as a species is the climate change. Um, it's possible that uh, it's happening so fast and there are so many ways that chickens can help us sequester carbon, literally, literally take carbon out of the, by, by making compost and building topsoil, that's sequestering carbon. You do that with even just 10% of the chickens, 10% of the households having family flocks, that translates to right around, I did the math and I don't have them with me right now, but it's, it's hundreds of tons kept out of the landfill. So not only are they sequestering carbon, they're keeping the methane and the uh, carbon dioxide from forming in the landfills and saving taxpayer dollars by not having to pick up transport and, and deal with that garbage through there. They can help us uh, by having local foods, can help us decrease our oil dependence. Uh, their manure and their insecticiders and their herbiciders talents can help us buck the oil system because that's what oil product those products are made from. They're based, most of them, made on oil, especially the herbicides and the pesticides. And so it goes on and on how they can, in my opinion, help us um, navigate the future, including the economic instability that might happen. Because in some countries, uh, chickens have been used as barter. You know, I, I know when I go to a good dinner, I'll take a, 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 a dozen eggs from my heritage broods, all different colors. You would have thought I'd give them the fine, finest bottle of wine. <laughs> you know, oh, we'll have these for breakfast. I mean, so so they, we can use them. They're, they're little portable unit of use. I mean, I mean, we can transport them if you need to travel. I mean, if you, so, so many advantages of, of having strong, uh, strong local foods, and those strong local foods are chicken-enabled with their skill sets, in my opinion. Cool. May the flock be with you, Pat. <laughs> and, and with you. <laughs> you just listened to a conversation between the friends of Mother Earth News. If you're interested in learning more about what you've heard in this episode, visit MotherEarthNews.com slash podcast for more information and resources. You may also find links from this episode in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and stay up to date through your favorite podcast provider or our website, MotherEarthNews.com slash podcast. Please rate and leave us a review and let us know what you think of the show. Give us a share so that we may continue sharing our friendly conversations with you. If you would like to get in touch, please send your mail to MotherEarthNewsPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us. I'm podcast producer Charlotte Brunin. Our podcast production team includes Haley Casey, Jessica Mitchell, and Robert Riley. Zach Slayton provided our music. The Mother Earth News and Friends podcast is a production of Ogden Publications.
Before we say goodbye, we want to take one last opportunity to say thank you to our partner, Brincy. Learn more online at www.brincy.com. That is B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Have a great week and don't forget to love your mother.